What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, philosophy, mythology, pop culture podcast. As always, I am very excited to be here. I hope, Midnight Myth listeners, you're all enjoying your summer in the way that you can. And I hope that you're wearing a mask, practicing proper social distancing, and helping you know stop the spread of COVID-19. And staying healthy yourself and staying sane. And, you know, infectious disease, it's, it's everywhere right now. It's all on our minds, as it should be. And we here at The Midnight Myth are in the middle of our series of science fiction episodes. We are looking at sci-fi movies and television series, and we're wondering what makes sci-fi tick. Last week, we did 2001, A Space Odyssey, and we announced that we're having a baby, because there's the birth of the star child at the end. And we thought that that movie was so fundamentally optimistic and it wielded sci-fi in an optimistic way that we wanted to recalibrate and be like, you know what? This is 2020. Things are not great. Disease is everywhere. It's almost as if we got captured by this disease and that it is being forced upon us against our will And that if only we could have quarantined it early, it would have never spread on our spaceship. And now we're stuck with this parasitic element that's running rampage through the vessel in space called Earth. And in that vein, we decided we wanted to look at sci-fi as horror, sci-fi as body horror. And we wanted to go to a movie that wasn't too far away chronologically from 2001 A Space Odyssey, and we are going to be talking about Ridley Scott's In Space, No One Can Hear You Scream epic, Alien. Woo, yeah, 1979's Alien. So we're moving forward just over a decade from our last uh, episode's discussion on 2001 A Space Odyssey. And yes, Derek, like you said, we're moving from a very optimistic, uh, romantic vision of sci-fi that shows the evolution of man into the ubermensch, into the next level of our 
uh, of our higher consciousness, and we're moving from that into a very different picture of what sci-fi can be. Uh, we're moving into the beautiful marriage of sci-fi and horror that happens in Alien, uh, which set off a real pop culture phenomenon. They're still making Alien movies. They are still making video games. And this has been uh, a really kind of iconic uh, landmark for sci-fi and what it can do. So I'm super excited to get started. Yeah, I mean, and just to, to say, the original movie Alien had three sequels after it. There have been two prequel movies, two Alien versus Predator movies. Right. I don't know how many comics and other types of media within the like alien mythos, for lack of a better term. It's safe to say that Alien started something huge. It started a pop culture movement and fandom that has echoing through till today. And I am very, very excited to give it the Midnight Myth treatment. We're just going to focus on the first movie. Right. We're not talking about any of the other properties. We're going to pretend like they didn't exist, and we're going to focus in on this. That being stated, folks, if you think this is a fantastic topic, I love everything Alien and would talk about all of them. So if you want to hear us talk about the other Alien movies or the prequels, just let us know. Hit us up um, any way that you uh, feel fit. And with that in mind, Laurel, do your thing. Yeah. So if you want to get in touch with us, the best place to do so is on social media. We are on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. Uh, we're also on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast, and we would love to hear from you. Uh, we're also launching a little bit of a Twitter campaign because we're doing this uh, science fiction series, and we started with 2001. I would love to get us to 2001 followers by the end of the summer. So if you're not following us on Twitter uh, already and you're listening, definitely do check us out there because we do uh, try to share some fun and interesting stuff every day uh, beyond the content that's on the podcast. Uh, also, you can head over to our website, midnightmyth.com, which is where you'll find blogs and additional content. Uh, you'll also find a link to our Patreon and our merch store. So if you have a couple extra bucks lying around right now, uh, you can support us on Patreon for a low monthly donation. That'll get you perks like bonus episodes and discounts on merch and so on and so forth. Uh, and then if you want to buy some merch, you can check out our Teespring store uh, where we uh, have tons of T-shirts, we have totes, we have mugs, we have onesies, everything you could possibly need with Midnight Myth stuff on it. Uh, the very best thing that you can do to support the podcast, though, does not cost you a dime. It just costs about five minutes of your time. Please consider, if you enjoy the show, heading over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and leaving us a five-star rating and a review. Uh, that would really, really help us out in reaching bigger audiences and staying on the charts. And it just feels really good to know that you're listening and that you have this great feedback for us. So please consider doing that. All right, on with the show. Yeah. Oh, if you want to talk to me on Twitter, because um, the Midnight Myth Twitter is managed 99.9% .9 of the time by Laurel and not me, it's at Derek Jones 198 And we are trying to get me to 301 <laughs> followers. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, I'm totally, totally joking. All right, shall we start with the briefest of brief recaps? Oh, yeah. The movie starts with the spaceship Nostromo on its way from a mining mission in deep space on its way back home to Earth, being awoken by its cybernetic AI computer called Mother. The crew wakes up thinking that they are almost home 
and they start talking about all the different ways they're going to spend their bonus money when they learn that they are actually 10 months away from getting back to Earth, and they were awoken by Mother because a mysterious signal is coming from a moon on a distant planet in an unknown star system. They decide they have to investigate this as company protocol mandates all unknown signals must be um, investigated or they will forfeit their entire sum, including their bonuses for this trip. So they reluctantly agree to land on this planet in which three of the astronauts slash workers slash miners go to investigate and they find an alien ship with a dead alien with a hole in its chest Presumably the hole came from the inside bursting out. When one of them is lowered into a deeper level of this spaceship, they encounter an egg in which the face hugger pops out and surrounds and suffocates the face of this one crew member. They attempt to bring him back on board only to find that quarantine protocols mandate that they must stay outside of the ship for the next 24 hours. However, the science officer Ash decides to let them in. This is when all hell breaks loose. They prematurely land or take off, pardon me, from the moon. Now that they're in space, they realize that whatever is surrounding this crew member is feeding it oxygen and keeping his body in a coma. Suddenly and miraculously, this creature leaves, dies, and the crew member awakens. They think everything's okay. They're ready to go back into hibernation to make their way for the 10-month journey back to home when a mysterious, vicious, biological event happens. An alien bursts from the stomach of the crew member. It quickly sheds its skin and becomes fully formed, and starts hunting the crew one by one until the last crew member alive is Ripley. We also learned that the science officer is actually not a science officer, but was planted by the company to retrieve the alien and is in fact a murderous, treacherous robot given orders to secure the alien specimen at all cost, even the lives of the crew members. In the end, the last crew member, Ripley, ends up escaping in a shuttle and jettisoning this parasitic alien into space, into the cold, icy grips of death. And Ripley then says, I don't know if I'll live. I don't know if I'll be picked up. Here are my last words. And goes into hibernation with her cat, Jones. Jonesy, yes. I was hoping that you would get the cat in there. Very, very important that she curls up at the end like Snow White or Sleeping Beauty, curled up with a cat, much like I do every night. Absolutely. I mean, that's a really like quick recap. A lot happens. This movie is considered a classic. We already talked about its pop culture significance and the huge franchise that it has spawned um, since its uh, original theatrical release. Pun intended there, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. My first question for you, and we, we talk about this a lot, in particular when we revisit a work of art, that's older that you and I, Laurel, haven't seen in some time. This movie came out in the late 70s. It's considered a classic. It has 98, maybe even better, on Rotten Tomatoes. Does it hold up? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it has that, it's holding down that 98 for a very, very good reason. I think this movie holds its own in every aspect from the 
incredible visual and creature design by H.R. Giger, who was this iconic Swiss artist whose art was very much in the sense of like marrying the biological, organic, uh, you know, horror figure with technology. Um, you know, that sort of suffuses this universe and gives it this very unique look um, to the richness of the mythology that is very much hinted at, but you get the sense there is a, a depth to this universe. Um, to the performances and to the characters and the relationships between them. I think um, this movie is very unique when it comes to sci-fi for a lot of reasons. One of those for me is how uh, it's kind of stripped down of the sense of awe and wonder that most sci-fi has. Usually if you're traveling through space and you're discovering alien creatures, you're going to be amazed by that and it's going to be uh, this sense of the uh, unknown and different and exciting. And this is not that. This is very much a down and dirty mundane future where commerce rules and we have not intrepid, brave astronauts who will do anything for the mission, but workers who are concerned with like saving their own skins and making money and who have to be thrust through this incredible adventure. Uh, it, it just completely sets itself apart and is a very unique experience. The tension, the dread that builds, uh, I, I just can't say enough good things about how, um, how affecting this movie is as a piece of horror and how much it gets you thinking, how much it gets you thinking about who you are and what you would do in this situation. The last thing I'll say just on this, like, this question that has clearly opened up a can of worms with me is that I do think Ellen Ripley is one of the like best women characters in sci-fi, uh, if not in all of cinema. So I love watching her. Uh, I love Sigourney Weaver's performance and she kicks ass. You hinted at a lot of themes um, there in, yeah. in your, your statement. And I think I agree with everything you said. This movie is a work of phenomenal art. It is a great, great story. It is expert filmmaking. We we do talk about directors uh, uh, quite a bit in this. We mention different directors and how they influence different works, in particular in cinema. And I don't say this enough. I adore Ridley Scott's work. I love it. My all-time favorite movie, yeah. bar none, easily, is Gladiator. I love that movie. I love the entire Alien franchise, every single installment in it, I love it. And that wouldn't exist without Alien. And Alien is easily, I don't want to say the best, but it's easily one of the best. It's hard for me to say which one I think is the best. But Alien kicked it off. Alien is so unique. This is clearly a, a filmmaker who knows how to manage a team of creative professionals to get them all focused on one goal, which is making this, this ship feel like it's alive. It's creating this world. You mentioned that it hints at a mythology without telling it. One of the most amazing aspects of this as a piece of science fiction, that it is science fiction without exposition. Mm. At no point does one character say, what's that? oh, that is the blah, 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 blah. And with the blah, 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 you can do the blah, 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 blah. It never happens. It hints at things. So I'll give a great example of this. 
when they find the spaceship where the signal is coming from, they walk onto it. No one says, that's an alien spaceship. We've never seen that before. No one says, oh, it's another alien spaceship, just like the time we saw that uh, City Alpha 22. No one says those. They just walk onto it. They say it's a fossilized alien life form. And by them seeing the ship, reacting to it in a mundane level, from them seeing an alien and saying it's an alien fossil, tells us that this is not the first time humans in their exploration of space have experienced alien life forms. And that that is almost unremarkable uh, in a sense. Like it, it almost does not matter to them. And it's not just, you know, encountering an alien life form. It's encountering a fossilized alien life form. So it's a recognition that not only is there intelligent life out there, but that it has existed for a really, really, really long time. And it got itself to interstellar travel before it died probably millions of years ago because now it's fossilized. Like, that's an incredible thing to hint at and to have nobody really bat an eyelash at. Uh, and that's why I say there's this rich mythology that's just hinted at because it's like, yeah, okay, this universe is full of really old, really powerful things. Uh, and we're not going to tell you very much about them, but we're just going to remind you that it's there. And I love that you said that it like normalizes the wonder, I think was yeah. what you said, or something like that. Yeah. The myth, the magic of space travel has been taken away. There's no luxury. These are characters that have a job to do, that are doing it to get paid. They want to make as much money as they can. They don't care about space travel. They don't care about exploring this weird signal. They'd rather just go home. The only reason the crew consents to go is the clause in their contract which stipulates if they don't investigate the signal, they forfeit their pay. So they're like, well, we got to go because we're in this for money, not for space travel, not for the love, not for the wonder. And finding an alien is just like, okay, we found an alien, um, you know, and great, now we found it, fantastic. Can we get home so we can spend our money on this ship? And I think are off this ship, pardon me. And I think that's really an interesting dynamic that does separate it from other sci-fi, which leads me to another question that I want to ask you about this. Yeah. And sorry, this is a bit of a Midnight Myth boomerang because it just popped into my head now. Please. Do you think Alien is more a sci-fi movie or a horror movie? Oh, wow. I mean, I, I think that one of the key things that makes this movie so unique is that it, it really beautifully blends the two. Um, so I, I have a hard time answering that question really um, concretely. What I think, um, I think the best way to answer this question is that uh, in terms of theme and substance, we are looking at more of a horror movie. Like it shares more in common with uh, with horror, I think, than with sci-fi in terms of how it interprets its themes, how its characters move through the story, uh, and who triumphs in the end. But it's illustrated, like the color between those lines is filled in with the trappings of sci-fi. Uh, and I think we get, you know, an opportunity to examine the similarities between the genres too. Uh, and the places where those genres can really overlap in terms of cosmic horror, uh, which I think is a, an element of what's going on here. So there is, is this very uh, concise Venn diagram of horror and sci-fi where we're looking at um, the things that are 
horrifying and scary about space travel, about the future, about the future of uh, economics and about uh, how humankind interacts with, uh, you know, not just uh, an alien life form, but how humankind interacts with uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, And yeah, so I think we're looking at a really skilled marriage of the two. If I had to prioritize one over the other in terms of what genre this really is, I think the actual meat and bones of the story is a horror film with uh, sci-fi wrapping paper. Okay, I love that. It's horror in space. Yeah. And because of that, it must also be sci-fi in horror. And, you know, I think you illustrated something there in your point that's worth highlighting, the the somewhat usefulness but also arbitrariness of genre. Yeah. Genre is a useful way for us to classify and categorize things. We expect certain tropes, certain behaviors from certain genres, and it makes it easier to identify what you like, to consume what you like, and for people making art to help fill that need. I'm a horror maker, so let me make a horror movie. For the horror fans, this is what they're expecting, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, those distinctions are completely arbitrary, 100% made up by us, and hold no inherent meaning. And what Ridley Scott is able to do in this movie is to blend the two to really almost say, from a genre perspective, who cares? Yeah. Right? It doesn't really matter. It, yeah, it's, it's sci-fi because they go to planets, they're on a spaceship, there's an alien, there are supercomputers, all of these things that we expect from sci-fi. It's horror in the respect that they're being hunted, there's a monster, there's a twist where they are in their group, there's another monster, the robot Ash, we'll get to later, and um, that there's a final girl who survives this horrible or- ordeal that they're isolated, that they're alone, and that they can't call for help. All of these things are tropes of horror blended into one. And when you do that, you get this like refreshingly original movie that really speaks to the heart of when you try to classify it genre-wise, you realize, eh. Yeah, right. Well, and the one thing I'll add to this conversation about the uh, the overlap between those two genres uh, and where they the the meaninglessness of genre sort of starts to take shape is like this isn't new. The marriage of sci-fi and horror is not new. Uh, the original sci-fi novel is also one of the greatest works of horror ever, and that's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Like, could you really say it's one over the other? It's a monster story, but it's also about uh, electricity and science fiction and. Uh, you know, what humans can do if they get their hands on new technology. So I think it's really important to ask these questions about, you know, what genre does this really fall into, but then to recognize that uh, since the birth of science fiction, we've had, uh, you know, this kind of, this this tendency to look at the horrifying aspects of it. I love it. And I do think if we if we analyze Alien strictly as a work of science fiction, and we say, what is it as a science fiction piece? You'd have to say it is the pessimistic version of the future. It's pessimistic in the respect that it's dirty, it's grimy. It has a seemingly capitalist interest, have conquered space travel completely and absolutely. Profit is the only motive that drives people. There's no utopia. 
They're not even scientists traveling through space. They're just people doing a job. Um, and in that they stumble accidentally on an alien life form that turns out to be hostile and they have to deal with it. And if it were up to the characters, they would have never even stumbled on this alien life form. And in it, it paints a fundamentally bleaker picture of the future, in particular when we compare it to other works of sci-fi, such as Star Trek, 2001 A Space Odyssey, yeah. etc. That a lot, there is a an element where we can parcel out sci-fi from the uh, bleaker, more dystopian versus optimistic, hey, we're all going to get there. This one's like, hey, we've conquered space and the best we can do, we can move or. Yeah, yeah. We can move or through space. Well done. And um, it's not, but, you know, presumably there's not a lot of the rest of this world. Maybe it's not all like this, but the only lens we see is this lens. Um, so I think we've discussed at length whether it holds up. <laughs> yeah, I think, we, I think we've answered that. Yeah, it holds up. It holds up. Let's uh, let's move on. It holds up, and there are so many different ways that we can analyze and interpret this film. Let me uh, let's kick off a little more deeper analysis, and and ask like kind of what do you think it's all about? Ooh, oh, you and the big questions, my friend. Um, you know, I I think that I think there's a lot of ways you could answer that question, but for me, this movie. Um, is a constant meditation on the body. Um, this is a movie where the human body and its functions and its dysfunctions are front and center, uh, even though they're contrasted with this cold, unfeeling spaceship and this uh, you know, monstrous figure that is hunting them that is distinctly inhuman. Uh, we see the characters sweat. We see them responding to uh, heat in certain areas of the ship and trying to get a splash of cold water on their face. We see bodily fluids come to the forefront. We see convulsions. Uh, this movie begins with the awakening of the crew after these lengthy dissolves and these long hallway shots of the ship and the uh, you know the technology of it. We see the crew being awakened basically wearing diapers, looking like babies being born, being awakened by Mother, the AI that pilots their ship. Uh, and from there, we descend into a movie where the human body is under attack. Uh, and it's under attack by a, uh, an external force that is parasitic and that is overtly sexual. So I think that is one of the key things to take away from this movie is how it um, it confronts and uh, you know weaponizes sexuality in a way that is uh, in some cases a brilliant metaphor and in other cases uh, it's startlingly real. I'll start this with a quote from the screenwriter Dan O'Bannon, who I think put it best in describing how overt the sexuality and the sexual metaphor of Alien is. He says, "quote." One thing that people are all disturbed about is sex. I said, that's how I'm going to attack the audience. I'm going to attack them sexually. And I'm not going to go after the women in the audience. I'm going to attack the men. I am going to put in every image I can think of to make the men in the audience cross their legs, end quote. 
kind of a, a violent uh, set of imagery from the, the screenwriter here, but he's right. You know, we've got an alien who attaches itself to your face, penetrates you, impregnates you, and forces you to give birth to its spawn, involving you in its reproductive cycle, and then hunts you down. Uh, so for me, this is a movie where the human body is consistently under attack, that is deeply engaged in the questions of gender and sexuality, uh, and that does so in a way that that really gets me thinking and gets me going. Yeah, you know, I can't help but this pinged my brain in a few different ways. So one way to correlate it to the mythological yeah. is to think of the birth of Zeus. Yeah, oh and wow. So to think of the Titan um, Kronos, had a prophecy that his son, one of his children, would overthrow him. So when his children were born, he swallowed them whole. However, uh, Zeus's mother hid him, wrapped him in a blanket, and fed Kronos a rock. And then Zeus then grows up, kills Kronos, cracks his head open, and out pop all the children that he swallowed whole, and mm. they become the Olympians. And that's when we have... Uh, Hades, Ares, etc., etc. Et All the Greek gods come out of them, and uh, a few more because Zeus goes around, gets busy, and, and there's other gods. Well, and there's a few other uh, examples of sort of asexual reproduction in Greek mythology too, like Athena being birthed from Zeus's head. Uh, so that's an interesting correlation there. Well, this idea that um, the species goes through the throat, and from there uh, something is born, and that thing that is born kills the thing that's giving birth to it. Yeah. The overthrowing of the Titans so that the new gods can live. And it's a central fear that exists in the mythological and almost all mythological stories that there are generations of powerful beings could be called gods, Titans, Aesir, Vanir, whatever you want to use, and that they can be overthrown by the next generation. And that next generation, if it's going to survive, it must use violence to overthrow them. Now, this can be interpreted in a few different ways, but one of the more interesting lenses is the psychoanalytical lens that says that these are manifest fears about us as a species um, and then as individuals having children. What do those children mean for us? Can they supplant us? And then the child needing to separate themselves from the parent in a some symbolic, violent way. This is articulated in Freud by the Oedipal complex, right. which is not to be taken literally as such, but also is to be taken symbolically, at least as it pertains to alien, that there is a bit of a psychosexual element. Piece of evidence, number one, the computer that drives the ship's name. Mother. Mother. What's well, the story, mother? Yep. And in this, um, we have a character. Uh, we have two characters that get to commune with Mother. We have Dallas, the captain, and Ash, the science officer. And they're guarding and protecting Mother. And both of them are keeping secrets for Mother, mm. right? So Ash is, is keeping secret that the real mission is to get this alien back to Earth. And then Dallas is keeping the secrets of like, hey, we do what the company tells us. And he doesn't poke and prod when mother says, no, you don't have the access to that. So he sits there subservient to mother. Then on the other hand of the mother, then 
what would be the father energy? Well, Dash and and Ash, that Dash, Dallas and Ash, who have possession of mother, are the fathers. And what do they do to Ripley? They're constantly putting her down. They're constantly overriding her. Undermining her authority. They're constantly telling her that she's wrong. They're giving orders. They're possessing her. And they're stopping Ripley from being the leader that she needs to be because they're afraid of being supplanted. Meanwhile, this is manifest literally in Cain, who is being impregnated by not just the new generation, but the species that could upend all of humanity, where you have the, like, the fear of the Titans themselves being destroyed by the, what it gives birth to. Penetrative, you said, you know, uh, non-voluntarily. And in it, he gives birth to this alien whose job it is to systematically and hunt down these Titans. And it's only until Ripley can kind of put these things in psychic harmony and become once removed from mother, realizing that mother's not helping her. Once Dallas is gone, having been consumed by this own symbolic child. I mean, uh, Ash calls it Cain's son, right? Yeah. Ash calls it the child of Cain. So this symbolic son having ripped through all of the aunts and uncles of the Titans, it isn't until Ripley gets herself in balance and harmony that she's able to overcome this and finally jettison this, this threat. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Amazing. Um, I think that's a really interesting perspective to bring to it from the mythological uh, and the the dichotomy that we're seeing here between uh, the the men on the ship, Dallas and Ash, trying to exert authority over Ripley, who is the character who is the most concerned with the integrity of the mission of all of them, right? So yeah. Dallas tries to get back on the ship as soon as possible because his priority is let's see if we can save Kane's life. But at the same time, Ripley's like, if we break quarantine, we could all die. Uh, therefore, the the safety of the entire mission, protocol, those things are more important to me than the possibility of saving one life at the, expect, uh, the expense of all of the rest of us. But Dallas and Ash are constantly, as you said, overriding that tendency toward integrity because probably on some level they fear being uh, controlled by a woman or by a feminine presence. At the same time, they're watching Cain be, uh, you know, ripped apart from the insides by this predatory masculine presence, by this, uh, you know, this figure that is uh, impregnating him and making him a victim. So it's their subconscious fears being played out right in front of them in this very literal way that's also this very uh, surreal, uh, unexpected and gross way. Yeah, definitely. I totally am into that. And I think one of the reasons the body is is such an important aspect and characteristic 
of this film is because it deals with these sort of primal fears, emotions that resonate backwards into mythology. I don't think, you know, Ridley Scott set out to say this is going to be about, you know, Zeus and Kronos, but I do think that lingers within our subconscious and it kind of bubbles out in some interesting and fun ways in this. Well, and we have uh, three very distinct kinds of bodies or really four. If you think about it, we have the human body as we talked about, uh, and we have the alien body as this parasite, this intrusion on the human space on the human body. And then we have the artificial body of Ash, uh, which is violently dismembered and deconstructed and then reconstructed at will, uh, which is a really interesting image, but it does so with this kind of expulsion of milky fluids, which brings up a whole bunch of different kinds of uh, masculine and feminine subconscious ideas. Uh, and then I would say as the fourth one, we have the the ship, the body of the ship too, that is the vessel, uh, the Nostromo that's carrying this crew uh, that is piloted by mother that uh, you know is sustaining their life and that still has to be violently destroyed in the end for Ripley to survive. So I think we have meditations on the body from a few different angles and directions as we explore different kinds of bodies. And we think about the mythological cycles of life, death, and rebirth. Um, they're always violent in their very nature. They're always destructive and creative simultaneously. There's a reason that from ancient China had the Taoist with the yin and yang. Um, and that echoes throughout the ages is that creation and destruction always kind of meet somewhere in the middle. And in this, we have a group of people traveling through space in the intersection of creation and destruction. You mentioned ash and ash being built and then dismembered and the milky liquid Obviously, that has lots of connotations to milk yeah. that suckles someone when they're a baby, to semen, yeah, right? Like in these fluids that can help, you know, create life, et cetera. And um, it's also important to note in ancient Norse, it was ashwood that the gods used to build the first humans. Yeah, yeah. And ashwood that was used to construct humans, the constructed proto-pseudo-human, the robot, the cyborg, if you will, is named Ash, and I don't think that's a coincidence. Right. Neither is Cain, I think. You know, both of those sort of being these primordial uh, names, like Ash evoking Ask and Embla, the first uh, first people who were created out of, you know, an ash and an elm tree, and then Cain representing the, you know, son of Adam and Eve. So I think there is absolutely, uh, you know, something being hinted at here. There's something that Ash says after he's been destroyed and sort of reassembled in order for Ripley and the surviving crew uh, to extract some information from him. This is after it's been revealed uh, that Ash was planted there in order to bring back the alien specimen and the crew is literally marked as expendable. And they ask him why, what is the real purpose of this mission? What is the deal with this alien and how do we kill it? And Ash calls it the perfect organism. He says it's a survivor, unclouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. I think this is a really important and key moment for the film because in the moment that we hear that, I, I think we naturally have some immediate reactions to it. I know that I immediately react against it and think, 
no, it's just an animal. It's just a creature being devoid of ethics and morality is, you know, what, what makes you not a higher uh, consciousness. And I have a very visceral reaction against it. But I wanted to pose this question to you and see kind of what uh, avenues it opens up. Do you think the movie agrees or disagrees with Ash? Big question. So let me unpack that a little bit. Yeah. Because I think in the the protagonist, and I do think this movie has two antagonists. Protagonist is Ripley, two antagonists. Antagonist one is the alien, soon to be called the xenomorph in the next movie. But really, the real antagonist is Ash. Because if it wasn't for Ash, the alien would have never even made it on board. And it would have stopped there. Because Ash is constantly undermining the humans in his attempt to, or its attempt, I should say, to get the specimen on the ship and get the specimen back to Earth, it's constantly putting the people at odds. Their chances of survival and success only come from when they work together. And since he's constantly working against, against them, pardon me, with an ulterior motive, it's less successful. And in that, we, we learn why. We learn the mission is for Ash to override all other concerns and get this, this alien specimen to Earth, in which he says, because it's devoid of morality. And we get a fundamental question, I think, on what it means to be a human. And we have three tentpoles in these three characters that we can examine. One is a monster, objectively. The xenomorph is a monster. All it seems to be able to do is hunt and kill. And reproduce. And reproduce. And in that, it, it is monstrous because it's a threat to humans, but in and of itself is not an unethical or ethical creature. It is ethically neutral, right? All it can do is what it has been pre-programmed to do through genetics and in response to external stimuli, on the other hand, we have Ash, and I would argue is the real monster because Ash is sacrificing the well-being of others for a selfish goal the entire time. And then we have Ripley, Ripley who is self-sacrificing, who cares about others, who understands the nuances of when you should follow company protocol to the T, when you should bend company protocol, and when you should blow up 20 million pounds of ore to save everyone's lives. Right. Right. And understands it can make those decisions. And one of the reasons Ripley is the surviving girl in this horror movie is because she gets that when all of the other characters don't, some of the characters who are humans are just purely self-interested. They get knocked off. Some of them are just like you tow the company line, you do what the company says, and that's all that you do. And they get knocked off. She understands the, the subtleties and the balances. So there's a, an argument to me to be, what does it mean to be human? And I think what this movie says, and I'm not saying this metaphysically certain, like this is the answer, this is what it means to be human. But what this movie is saying, when you compare Ash, the alien, and Ripley, it's our ability to think and conceive ethically that makes us human. And if we understand that, Ethics is what drives humanity. I don't think the movie agrees with Ash at all. I think it's setting up, Ash is saying that to have the reaction that you have. 
And the best piece of textual evidence that this is what the movie is saying is Jones, the cat. She saves the cat. She saves the cat. And literally saving the cat is like the, it's the cliche. It's the like most cliched thing you can possibly say when writing a screenplay. But it's like, you know, Superman is really a good guy and you're really going to get Superman on your side because on his way to save people from a burning building, he also saves a kitten from a tree. You know, that, that proves that there is like actual inherent goodness to a character. Uh, and, and Ripley saves the cat. And and for and she saves the cat when she doesn't have to. Yeah. She doesn't need to. It in fact makes it harder for her to escape. But at the end of the day, she goes out of her way to save Jones the cat. And because of that, the movie is saying, "No, you have to be ethical. You've got to be like, you know what? The right thing to do here is to save the cat because I can't save anyone else." Yeah. And I would argue none of the other human characters would have saved the cat. Right. They all would have sacrificed the cat, but Ripley saves the cat. And because she saves the cat, it's saying, no, the perfect being cannot be cold and heartless and unethical. Ethics is not a burden. It's a privilege. If you have consciousness, which is a loaded term that's ill-defined by science, but we all kind of agree that we have it, if you have the ability to think and feel your way through life, if you have to live in these bizarre contradictions, you have a duty and a privilege to try and parcel out what the right thing to do is and do your best to do the right thing. You know, like, so it's a privilege and a duty and an honor. And Ripley exemplifies that. And I think that falls in stark contrast to Ash's view where it's like, no, the perfect being is raw biological evolution without thought, feeling, emotion, caring, and ethics. And I totally think the movie rejects that. At least my reading of the movie rejects that. And that's why Ash is destroyed. That's why the xenomorph gets plunged into space. And that's why Ripley with Jones get to live. I think that's great. I think that's really well said. You know, there's almost a quiet tragedy to watching like the light leave Ash's eyes as he speaks with such like admiration for this creature because there's such a huge difference between Ash and uh, the alien. We have on the one hand, uh, you know, a, a Ash was conceived as like an intellectual object, a piece of technology that is inorganic. Uh, and that does not have the benefit of evolution, that does not have the benefit of adaptation. It's mostly uh, a disembodied mind that happens to have a housing at the moment, but if that housing goes away, you can still you know, stick the wires together and make him say something. Uh, and then on the other hand, the alien is animal, it's instinct. It's this purely Darwinian uh, you know, creature that has developed this really interesting pattern of reproduction and survival. And there's almost an elegance to the creature too, uh, to the, the life cycle that it takes. And we know from Ash's, um, you know, analysis of it that the face hugger even uh, is able to adapt to any atmospheric conditions that it sort of shed some of its natural uh, you know, composition and was replacing itself with silicone, I think it said. Um, so there's this incredible um, speedy adaptation that's part of it. So you could understand why someone like Ash would admire that kind of elegant presentation of adaptation and evolution. 
Um, but then, yeah, like you've said, there's these three tent poles, and there's Ripley somewhere in the middle. And I think she embodies this kind of mind-body problem that philosophers have been dealing with for centuries, uh, since, you know, at least back to Aristotle, but this really, uh, you know, formed itself and became a, a big philosophical question with the 17th century philosopher Descartes, who believed that the mind and the body were two very separate and distinct substances, uh, and that human beings were special because they were kind of the, the joining of both. And so while this is a movie that is very... Um, very aware of how it is trying to um, remind you of the fact that you are an animal, that you can be hunted down, uh, that you you don't have a whole lot of protection out there, that in space no one can hear you scream. It's also setting up this very interesting, um, it's just this very interesting spectrum of like the mind and the body and what they're like when they're yoked together. And saying that, you know, there is a way that humanity can triumph over the pure intellect in Ash and over the pure animal in uh, the alien. At least at the end of this, it looks like humanity has triumphed. Yeah, and I think whether you read it in the psychoanalytical lens or in the mind-body, you know, paradigm, I mean, Ripley ends in a state of harmony and gets to return to hibernation, gets to return to this sort of maternal symbolic sleep that she gets to get herself ready for reborn because there's a sense of harmony implicit in her that she exemplifies from when she follows the rules, breaks the rules, um, helps others and actually tries to lead this team because she wants to lead it. It's important to note that she's third in command. Yeah. She's not the Zeus, right? Right. You know, she's not, she is third on the rung and she is thrust to make difficult decisions at every time. And time and time again, she's making the right decision or encouraging the two officers who outrank her to make the right decision. And it is them that are pushing her down. And when she finally gets the chance to lead, she comes up with the plan that it doesn't save everyone's lives. And that's like the horrible tragedy most of these characters succumb to the, the, the xenomorph and to the machinations of Ash. But at the end, she gets to escape with her and Jones in a state of relative harmony and gets to go to sleep on her journey back to Earth. Now, we know from the Alien franchise that's not where this character's story ends, but it could have. Yeah. If it ended there, it would have been a great ending. I'm glad it didn't because I love all of the Alien movies from there, but it is such a perfectly contained story and it's about her finding this harmony. So whether it's confronting cold rationality in Ash and Mother and honestly also the company or whether it is succumbing to just bodily impulses, instinct as the, the, the creature, the alien, the xenomorph, and she is the harmony between the two. Wonderful. You know, it's incredibly significant that it's uh, that it's a woman who is the, the the winner of the day here. That it's a woman who is the final survivor, and you know, she is a survivor, and that is really the that's the that's the power of this. Uh, not that she uh, you know sacrifices herself for the crew. Not that she uh, you know gets everyone to safety, but that she's a survivor. The same thing that Ash admires the alien for, uh, Ripley does. 
And that's the best she can do, and that's enough for us here in the end. But it's significant for um, for the genre, I think, that it's a woman uh, because it is, I think, subversive in sci-fi for uh, the for the powerful, you know, surviving victorious character to be a woman. I think is is different. I think it absolutely surprised people at the time, especially because you've got a cast with Tom Skerritt the like dashing commander and John Hurt, this like incredible Shakespearean actor who you think these two are going to be the like super amazing heroes who save the day. And at the end, the winner is the measured, uh, you know, character with integrity. It's the one who is dedicated to, uh, like you said, balancing protocol, balancing towing the company line with making really difficult decisions in the moment. Uh, and and it's a woman, and I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I totally agree with that as well. You know, Dallas just tells, you have to do what the company says. Like, we all do what the company says, and we don't have any choice or freedom. Until his life is in danger, and then he's willing to throw everything out the door. And then you have Ash, who says, you know, I do this because this creature is beautiful, and it's my job to bring it back, but it's more, I don't get any benefit, I... I'm enamored by it. It's telling that when Ash turns and attacks Ripley and he succumbs Ripley, how does he try to kill her? He rolls up a magazine. Yeah. Just like the way that the xenomorph has this other jaw. Yeah. The mouth within the mouth. I mean, that's very phallic, right? Yeah. Incredibly. It's all predatory masculinity. And he rolls up this, this, you know, this magazine and he tries to choke it down her throat simulating the attack not only of the face hugger but also of the alien itself and tries to suffocate her of all of the ways for a robot to try to kill a human when they have them kind of in the fight on the ropes that is by i have to imagine that has to be the least effective way to do it but does it out of homage to the alien yeah because ash is so enamored by the alien he tries to simulate this phallic, masculine, sort of a predatory way of attacking and tries to choke a magazine down her throat. Yeah, oh, that's a really good point. Yeah, I just, I absolutely adore this movie. I love its gritty realism. I love that though it has a more pessimistic tone, there is an optimistic air to how Ridley can get into harmony and overcome all of the obstacles and she gets to get to the next phase of her adventure. I think this movie is a work of art on every layer and in every level. And I do think there is lots of history, mythology and philosophy, actually not so much history that I can think of, but tons of philosophy and tons of mythology bubbling under the surface of it. It's been a lot of fun unpacking this. I want to just echo this too. I said it earlier in the pod. If everyone likes this episode, I would love to do more aliens. However, we are going to turn the tables and we're going to be doing more sci-fi. Would you like to announce our next project? I think that would be a great idea. It's going to be a real change from uh, from both of the previous uh, installments, I think. Uh, and I'm I'm excited that we're going to do it. I'm also a little bit nervous because we're wading into a fandom that is uh, so, so beloved by so many people. 
I've done more than try to kill you. I've hurt you. And I'll keep hurting you, leaving you in the center of a dead planet, buried alive. If you didn't recognize that, it is from the 1982 fantastic film, The Wrath of Khan. Star Trek The Wrath of Khan is what we're going to do next. So this is our first time touching Star Trek. uh, And like I said, I'm a little nervous, but I think we're going to have a really good time. And I just pulled that quote from memory. So if I got something wrong, I was paraphrasing. Twitter, please don't eat me alive or eat me alive. You know, you got to do what you got to do. You can take it. I can absolutely take it. We're really excited to dip our toe into Star Trek for the first time. Um, Had tons of fun here in Alien. Laurel, do you have any final thoughts? I just have one final thought. And uh, that's a quote from this movie. And just a reminder that even though in a lot of places it looks like the pandemic is slowing and it looks like things are reopening and we can go back to business as usual, if we break quarantine, we could all die. Uh, So please keep wearing your masks. Please stay safe. Uh, We hope you're staying healthy. We love you. Uh, And until next time. Be kind. Be kind.